Hey, hey, hey there, OCD family community. It must be Friday because we are coming in hot with another amazing episode of OCD Family Podcast. And today we have a special guest in Brooke Miller. For the past three weeks, we've been honoring lived experience as we closed out 2022 and ring in 2023. And while many of my guests, professionals included, have disclosed lived experience with the fam here, I really wanted to highlight some of our heroes that really bring this family together. So let's do this, y'all. Because Brooke, she understood the assignment, and we were better for it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Ooh, it's been a busy, yeah, busy, but productive week. And hey, did y'all know that a month from tomorrow is Valentine's Day already? Like, I'm not proud to say this, but we don't even have our Christmas tree down yet. And it's a real tree y'all. A real dead tree at this point. I don't think we've ever gone this long with a real tree that, just for some backstory here, stopped drinking water about a week into its residence here. So that baby is a fire hazard. So it's definitely on the docket for this weekend to put Christmas in a box and put it away. And I don't know about you, but the decluttering of all things Christmas, as lovely and inviting as it might be to put that decor out and get into the season, I feel like at the end of the season, it's like, okay, y'all, done. I'm done. Let's put it away. Box it up. Put it in the attic. Do the things. Moving on. Also, here in the States, the United States, it's a three-day weekend for many because we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the national holiday, always the third Monday of January. And even if you're outside the States, I think most people can get behind the importance and the value of civil rights. But go on to argue that civil rights are human rights. And while we have come a long way since Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Washington and shared his dream, We still have a ways to go. So this is a good opportunity to highlight that there's going to be an upcoming series starting at the end of the month on finding unity in diversity. And I'll be serving that up with some fantastic guests. If you follow me on social media, that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok, you may recall seeing a post about this. And I just want to note, supporting human rights and access to treatment isn't limited to just a series. It's foundational to the philosophy of this family, the OCD family community. So I'm looking forward to our ongoing conversations and supporting all of our fam in knowing we're not alone. Your skin color, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexuality, your neurotype, your religion, 
they are a welcomed part of the kaleidoscope that is our OCD family tree. And when all the fam knows and can experience that we are united as one fam against OCD, oh baby. Well, it's like a client of mine said recently, OCD is going down. And I'll tell you what, fam, we are here for it. Yes. So we will be continuing these important conversations on an ongoing basis, but I am going to highlight, just as we did with the OCD-related disorder series last fall, some important conversation points in this series, streaming soon. So I'm really excited to be able to dig into that. I'm excited when I look out and I see what's on the horizon for us, fam. But I'm also really, really, really excited to dig into the here and now today because OCD warrior Brooke Miller is here to talk about comorbidities with us. For our newer family, let me just say comorbidities is clinical speak for more than one thing going on at a time, okay? And as we've talked over the course of this podcast, comorbidities are pretty common in life, and that includes in OCD. So Brooke is going to guide us through her experience of learning about OCD, but also some of the other monsters that tried to gang up with OCD along the way. Also, Brooke is the mother of a kiddo with OCD. So you know we've got to discuss some of those strengths and challenges, y'all. Because adding lived experience to also supporting someone else with their own individualized lived experience of OCD, that could get tricky. And it also can be rewarding because you, me, Brooke, her son, all of us, you know the drill. We're better together. Brooke covers so many relatable and helpful bases for us. And my hope is that she too can feel and know, girlfriend, you're not alone. So, hey, let me introduce her to y'all because we are in for a treat. Well, I am so excited here today on the OCD Family Podcast to welcome Brooke Miller. Brooke, welcome to the family gathering here. Thank you. Yeah. And Brooke, this is just going to be a really powerful time, I know, because Brooke is coming and giving one of the greatest gifts that she can. She's putting a voice to her experience. And she is risking vulnerability and leaning into it for really the better of this community and everyone that she is able to share her story with. So, Brooke, thank you so much for coming on today. And we're going to be talking about a couple different things. We're going to be talking about family support and loved ones support and what people can do to help show up and advocate for their loved ones. And certainly we will get to that. But you're going to tell us about your own lived experience growing up and learning about OCD. And you're also going to be telling us about some other mental health things you ran into along the way that are very, very common to interweave with other disorders. So we really appreciate you being here today. I just want to thank you very much for having me. I'm super excited to be here to share my story openly, transparently, to help raise awareness and decrease stigmas. So I'm super glad to be here. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your journey in mental health from the beginning. 
Sure. So first memory, OCD is what affected me first. I can recall I was about eight years old and I remember I would fold my dirty laundry before placing it in my linen hamper. And at first I didn't really know why I was doing it. I just felt the compulsion to do it and Mm -hmm. the need to do it. Another thing that I started doing was I was young, so I had lots of decorative pillows, like I'd say 13, 15 pillows, something like that on my bed. And every night when I went to bed, obviously I needed to put place those on the floor so that I could sleep in my bed. And instead of just kind of tossing them onto the floor, I had to put them in a very designated order mm-hmm. on the floor before I was able to fall asleep. So once again, similar, I felt the compulsion to do it. I felt I needed to do it and I didn't really understand why. But pretty quickly after that, I started developing an association with an intrusive thought that if I did not fold my dirty laundry or organize my pillows accordingly, that a loved one would die. So it came on pretty strong. It was very scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just continued to do it because I was convinced, obviously, at that point in time, I had no idea what obsessive compulsive disorder was. But I just was convinced that, you know, if I didn't do this, something bad would happen to somebody I knew. And if I did, I could keep that from happening. Mm -hmm. So I just continued to do what I now know was, you know, a ritual every day in and day out. Can I ask really quickly, did you at that time tell your parents or family at all? I did not. I did not share it with anybody. I I don't, I think I knew that something wasn't quote unquote normal mm-hmm. about those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so at that point in my life, I was so young. I, you know, I didn't want to share that with people because I didn't want to be not normal mm-hmm. or not seen as my peers, et cetera. So no, it, I did not share that with anybody. Which is very common. And I was just curious. It's it, it can be very common, whether it's embarrassing or it's a perception of well, people. How are they going to react? Is it going to add distress to others? And so that's a very scary thought to be holding all to yourself. Absolutely. With such big ramifications. So it felt the intrusive thought was very, very strong. OK, so that's where it started. And did it continue to just blossom as you went through puberty, hormonal changes, all of that? Like, tell us about what happened next. Yeah. So unfortunately, it did. As some of you may know, OCD is very good at changing scenes, jumping around, throwing you curveballs. When you think you have a grip on one thing, it just decides to deliver you another one. Mm -hmm. So as I started to get older, I started to develop significant perfectionism, which Back in those years, caveat, I'm 36 years old, just to kind of, you know, put time frame into perspective. Mm-hmm. Back in those years, it wasn't very well known. Obsessive compulsive disorder wasn't very well known. Mental health wasn't very well represented. So I was praised for those behaviors, for those perfectionism behaviors. My teachers loved me. They told my parents that I was perfect. My work was always perfect. I was an A student. My parents expected the same things from me. So I was a perfect child. I rarely got into any form of trouble. Mm-hmm. Any sort of, you know, as I got older, any sort of team that I tried out for or any sort of job I applied for, I always got. I worked very, very hard to do so. And it took a toll on me. I didn't understand it at the time, but constantly pushing for that perfectionism. 
which that perfectionism then started to kind of blend with those previous compulsions of when I was eight. So I started to develop a lot of rituals that I would need to place things in certain order or in certain directions. So a couple examples, when I hung my towel up after taking a shower, the tag would have to be on the left. Mm -hmm. When I put my toothbrush in the drawer, the head of the toothbrush would need to face towards the left. All of my pillows and blankets in my bedroom would need to be organized. Things were color-coded. My clothes were color-coded, books, et cetera. And these all attach themselves to that intrusive thought that if I did not do these things, that something bad would happen to now either a family member or a close friend or myself. Mm -hmm. So I started to really get those intrusive thoughts of fearing death, not only for the people that I love, but for myself as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And so perfectionism, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And I think there is a little bit of a shift towards people going, oh, I'm noticing perfectionistic qualities maybe in my child. And maybe I I always say I'm a recovering perfectionist, trying to not be perfect, even though I know I'm not perfect, but not even trying anymore to to hit these perfect expectations that I often put on myself. But yeah, I mean, I think people are getting more mindful of that for their kids. There's also competitive natures and there's going to be advantages to being the most successful, the highest score, the 4.0 student, the scholarship full ride, the Ivy League, you know, pick a thing. And so absolutely, you're speaking to this piece that really can be hard in a lot of different ways. But when we're talking about we have a perfectionistic tendency and now we apply it through kind of the mental health filter, then it's like, how do you be perfect at your management or at your safety behaviors in terms of your OCD, your compulsions to prevent whatever doom and gloom your intrusive thoughts are guaranteeing will happen if you don't perform. And no matter how well you perform, It's never good enough for OCD. It just wants more. So you're perfect. But this is the one area where you can feel like I'm failing and missing the mark because OCD wants more. So where did that go from there? So as I got into high school, it continued to build because as I'm sure you're aware, if you don't treat OCD, it tends to get worse. And as you commit more and more of the rituals and compulsions, the thoughts start to build more and more. They become more concrete. They become more real, more guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So that continued throughout high school and into college. When I got into college, it was interesting. I started to develop a lot of newer behaviors and newer intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. So one situation that I can recall very vividly is in a very short period of time, in a matter of less than a month, I received a phone call from my mom telling me that my grandpa who had cancer was likely not going to make it through the day. And I was in class and my phone rang several times. So I stepped out of class, took the phone call, and I was given the opportunity to talk to him one more time. He did pass away by the end of the day, that day. And then very shortly after that, I received several phone calls while I was in another nursing class, stepped out. They were from my now husband, boyfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. He had informed me that my dad had been in a construction accident and was being sent to the hospital. So I met my dad at the hospital. Thankfully, he was fine. He needed surgery, but he did very well. 
But those two experiences in a short period of time, as you can imagine, they really pushed on that trigger of something bad can happen to somebody that I love and care for. Mm -hmm. And so I became very fearful of my phone. Mm -hmm. So I frequently would not answer phone calls. I would just let them go to voicemail and then I would take the voicemails as I was ready to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Anytime a family member called me, if it was outside of kind of normal business hours, mm-hmm. I would get very pre-panic type symptoms, heart would start racing, shortness of breath. So one of my favorite tactics, or I should say my OCD's favorite tactics is avoidance. I'm very good at it. I've become very good at it because I've been practicing it for many, many years at this point. And so at that point, that was what I did. I avoided the phone as much as I possibly could, Mm -hmm. which in this world is not super convenient. As you can imagine, that was one that came about. Another thing that happened in college is I started developing these like angry outbursts, which are not classic of my personality whatsoever. They took me by surprise. I had no idea where they were coming from. But as I can imagine at this point, I think I had so much stress and anxiety in my life that was just a way for my body to try to get rid of some of that. Mm-hmm. And those angry outbursts are actually what led me to try to make an appointment as a therapist for the first time. Okay. So when I was in college, I was probably about 20, 20 and 21, I'd say. And I realized something wasn't right. With everything that I was experiencing, I realized that I felt like I could be living a better quality life and I needed help. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to a local therapist, didn't really know much about OCD at that point in time, mm-hmm. got into contact with them, ended up seeing that person actually for a couple of years. Unfortunately, what I didn't know at the time is that the gold standard for treating OCD is exposure response prevention. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that she was trained in. So we did a lot of talk therapy, which in the moment, it felt like it helped. So really good in the moment, I'm sure. Did. In the moment, it felt great, right? To talk about the things that were happening on a daily basis, college stressors, et cetera. It felt great, but it wasn't hitting the baseline of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, I ended up, my husband and I ended up moving out to California. I did some travel nursing. Where were you in California? Because I moved here from California. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So my first contract was at Stanford. So we lived in Sunnyvale. Beautiful Sunnyvale. Love that area. Mm-hmm. And the weather is always perfect. It, it is. It is. Yes. Yes. I had friends up there at one point and I used to go up there a lot. It's very, very pretty. The Stanford campus is beautiful. I had a run club up there. It was great. That's awesome. Yeah. And then we lived in San Diego for a little bit at their children's hospital. Okay. I have a friend that did travel nursing in San Diego as well. So that is, that's, that's awesome. So travel Mm -hmm. nursing is great, but California is probably very different than what you were used to. Yeah. And and it's you and your husband. So I'm assuming family was not living and residing in California. So you're now like each other's main community. Correct. And then so as you went out there, what happened next? Did you link up with another therapist? Did you feel like I'm in a good space and here we are? I, I could, you know, we're living our dreams and getting to travel and all of that. Like, where did it go from there? So that's pretty much what happened. It was a last minute decision. I decided to do travel nursing. We sold a bunch of our stuff, sold one of our cars, got rid of our apartment, dumped our stuff, our one dog into our truck and off we went. It took like a 10 day road trip to get out there. 
And travel nursing world, especially in the operating room, is very crazy. You get about two or three days to figure it out, and then you just got to get ready to go. Mm -hmm. I was working orthopedics and ortho trauma when I was there, so very, very busy. Mm -hmm. And I did not, when we lived out in California, I did not end up linking up with another treatment team. I felt pretty plateaued, I would say. Mm-hmm. And with all of the excitement and commotion, it created quite the distraction, I think, for me at the time. So it kind of kept me at that plateau while we were out there. Mm-hmm. So after living in Sunnyvale, moved down to San Diego, and then we got pregnant with our first child. So we were super excited and we knew we wanted to move home because we wanted to be close to our families, having the first grandbaby both sides. Mm-hmm. So we Packed up again, moved back home. We hit Europe for four weeks quickly. As like a baby moon type thing. Yeah. yeah. Pretty like, yeah. We were like, it's either now or never. We're like, let's squeeze in some Europe. Yeah. We have yeah. listeners in Europe and it is beautiful. There are so many beautiful countries. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. It was that trip was the trip of a lifetime. It was so amazing to be immersed in cultures that we were not familiar with. And we just saw so much beautiful architecture and landscaping. And yeah, it was really quite the trip. So then we came back, we got settled in. We had our first child in December of 2012, a boy, Mm -hmm. and he kept us very busy. And something to take note of that I found very interesting, but I have heard is very common, is my OCD symptoms were kind of at bay. They were quiet while I was pregnant and while I was nursing. Hmm. So there is some theory behind that, that some people's hormones, depending on, you know, just how they are, can kind of counteract those symptoms and bring those down. So thankfully, I was lucky enough to experience that. But I had kind of a quieter mind when I was pregnant with both of my children. And I think that's an excellent point, and I'm glad you brought that up because certainly perinatal symptoms can intensify, and that can be scary when people are considering family planning or having children, because what if that gets worse? Is this going to be hard for me? Am I going to be safe? All the, Are they going to be safe? But at the same time, it's not always an increase, and sometimes, you know, it is those hormonal changes. And if you continue to be breastfeeding, and I don't know how many people know this either, but a lot of times, even though your body is surely making hormonal changes versus when it was carrying the child, it can continue through all that breastfeeding journey. So let's say you wean later, you know, much later after the birth of the child, you may not be expecting it, but your hormones are going to be fluctuating and certainly can have an impact on all sorts of things not just mental health, your physical health, your your sleep, all sorts of things. And so I think that's a really good point. It's not always super intense during that postpartum time. And while you had one nursing at home, you were noticing a quieter mind. So thank you for pointing that out. That's helpful. Definitely. As our son started to grow up, he was still, I don't know, like 12 months, give or take. I started to notice that symptoms were coming back and they were coming back very strong and they had now shifted to a new theme, which I'm sure you can imagine was my son. Mm -hmm. So it came in 
every form, I felt like I had gotten to a point of having a lot of contamination fears. Mm -hmm. I was worried about bringing things home from the hospital to my family. So significant hand washing to the point of very dry, bleeding hands. Mm -hmm. I became very aware of what I considered to be toxins in my environment, Mm -hmm. specifically BPA which is the plastic. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't touch plastic bags from stores. I only allowed them to bag my groceries or items, paper bags. I wouldn't touch receipts. So I'd always say, no, I don't want the receipt. Or if they handed it to me, I'd grab it with like a coat or a sweater hand and then throw it away right away. I spent a fortune on children's toys because I didn't want my child to be exposed to any toy that had any form of plastic in it. And as you can imagine, wooden and natural toys rack up quite well. Sure. I spent hours, hours seeking reassurance and checking on the internet for everything you can imagine. I mean, I got to the point of typing in, am I a good mom? Imagine what Google will tell you if you type in, am I a good mom? Mm -hmm. Or why is my baby crying? Mm -hmm. And I would spend hours just delving into, you know, different blogs and different postings and different websites trying to find answers that there really weren't answers to. Mm I would spend hours researching, quote unquote, clothes for my son, shoes for my son, toys and books for my son to make sure that I was always picking the optimal choice, the best choice. I never wanted anything subpar. So this is really, I can say this is really when my OCD really took off and really got a good hold on my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was spending more hours in my day with my obsessive compulsive disorder than I was with myself or yeah. those around. That's a that is a powerful statement right there, but I think so many so many people can relate to that. I know I can. So that's very powerful. So that was kind of the peak. Was your husband aware of I'm sure he was aware that you were researching and you're such a great mom for being yeah. so on top of the research, but was he aware of the anguish that you were experiencing in this or was he just witnessing the busyness of how consuming the time was for this? Yeah. I mean, he was definitely witnessing the busyness. There were times that I would cry because I'd be at such a loss and I think I was just so overwhelmed with the stress and anxiety. I remember one time I was loading the dishwasher and I had to load the dishwasher very specifically. I had to face utensils certain directions. The Um, left, maybe? (laughs) Yes, I'm noticing a theme. So OCD likes the left over there. (laughs) No, my OCD likes the left. My OCD likes even numbers, not odd numbers. My OCD likes numbers that are not divisible by three. So yeah, lots of little nuances there. But I remember loading the dishwasher and I was under a time crunch. We were, we had to go somewhere or something. And I got so frustrated because I just couldn't do it fast enough that I started crying. I began, this was the period in my life where I began ritualistic praying. I had a prayer that lasts somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. And it pretty much was in general asking a higher being to protect myself, everybody I knew from everything you can imagine, from tornadoes to spider bites to sudden sap of breathing to heart attacks. And that's why the prayer was so long. As a nurse, I'm sure you had plenty of things you could fill in the blank, too. Yes, all different sorts of cancer. I mean, it was it was very, very lengthy. So this was the time when I was like, okay, something's really shifted. I really need help. So... I called around. I got into another therapist 
I walked into her office. The first meeting was a lot of, you know, history. What is, what are your current symptoms look like, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We set up a follow-up appointment. Mm-hmm. Came back in for the follow-up appointment and I sat on the couch and she told me that she could not treat me. And I was like, oh, okay. So I wasn't expecting that. She said she wasn't the right person to treat me. She couldn't help me. And the best advice that she had for me was to read a book called Brain Lock. And I was like, okay. So I left pretty discouraged. My symptoms continued to get worse in the coming weeks. And so I called a local behavioral health hospital and they had an outreach program. And I am so incredibly thankful. That was the best call I've ever made. And as we talk, you will learn that that call saved my life several times. Mm -hmm. So I talked to somebody in community outreach and he had been there for years and he told me there, no matter what my insurance company told me, there were only a certain list of providers that he would recommend in my area were highly trained in exposure response prevention, which at that point I had never heard that word, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And then I remember he left me with parting words wisdom. He said, and if a therapist ever only recommends you to read a book called Brain Lab, run. <laughs> like, I wish I would have known these a couple weeks ago. If anything, though, that gives him credibility because you're like, that just happened to me. He's in the know. He knows things. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So I called a couple numbers. I made a couple appointments with them and then ended up getting in with one. His name is Damon and he is my therapist to date. So I have been with him for nine-ish years, I would say. It has been a roller coaster. There have been many ups and downs, happy, sad, mad, moments. But I finally found somebody who, as I said before, highly trained in obsessive compulsive disorder, very experienced with exposure response prevention, and also can be very strong-willed at times, which is perfect for me (laughs) because my OCD really likes to dig its feet in sometimes and very black and white thinking. So it's good to have somebody that can partner me and challenge me when I need that. So walked into his office, gave the whole history. He was like, yep, I can help you. First appointment, he explained what exposure response prevention was. And I was like, never heard of that. And he's like, I think this will do wonders for you. We started tackling a lot of those. I remember some of my first exposures were I had to sit in my house and look at a crooked lampshade and not fix it until my anxiety came down. I had to touch the plastic bag for 20 seconds and then a minute. And then I had to get to the point I still remember of allowing my child to touch a plastic bag. What we worked on, I wasn't able to do the laundry at that point in time because I was scared that the lint was toxic. Mm-hmm. So we worked on exposure to that. Mm-hmm. I had developed orthorexia, which is an obsession of eating quote, healthy food. And I wouldn't allow myself to eat anything that was not not natural or not organic. So I remember by the end of that exposure, he had me eating a regular apple. I couldn't believe it. Um, Instead of an organic, no pesticide, no, yes, exactly. And you're not the only person. We've been talking about this a little bit lately with some other guests too. So you're certainly not alone, but it is one that people are not as familiar with. So I'm glad that we're able to normalize that, especially in this day and age. And, you know, if you go to bigger city areas, it's going to be marketed hardcore, too, about the benefits of going into that lifestyle. But we're talking about going into real kind of fear and panic if you're not 
able to access a pure yeah. enough, clean enough food. Yeah, absolutely. So you went into kind of that space and you were kind of treading water in that area. You're now with an ERP therapist, though, and doing some of those exposures and leaning in. Yep. And so we made a lot of progress and we made a lot of progress very quickly. There was a ton to work on because as you can imagine, I've been experiencing this since I was eight and it had just kept growing. Sure. So there was a lot to work on. To our surprise, but not, we got pregnant with our second child while I was seeing this therapist. And I still remember this story. So I, because I struggled with contamination, some of the other stuff he had me do for exposures was like going to the bathroom in my own house without washing my hands afterwards. And I was newly pregnant with my daughter at that point. And I ended up getting really sick to the point where I was hospitalized because I'd lost so much fluid and I was about 12 weeks pregnant, I think at the time. And so they wanted to just check up on the baby and push fluids and whatever. And I remember I stormed into his office and I was, my OCD was raging. I was like, this is your fault. I was like, this is why I washed my hands. Because you had me not wash my hands that one time. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. I risked my daughter or, you know, our baby. I risked myself, you know, and all of this. And it was very, very emotional session. I bet. And I was very upset. And ultimately, you know, we talked about the logicalness of the whole thing, which is something that my OCD struggles with is logic. I can be the most logical person sometimes and then other times, just not. But we talked about that. And with hesitation and reluctance, I continued to do the exposures because they hadn't worked on the other things that we had done. Mm -hmm. And so we continued with that. And I want to say I was with him for about a, maybe a year to and I was like, okay, I'm good. Oh my gosh, made all this progress. I'm good. I can, I'm done. I can go off on my own and we're all set. And to this day, he still, you know, teases me and says that he recalls that when I left. And he was like, wow, she's very confident considering just how long this has been affecting me, mm -hmm. you know, and how many things I could be working on. And, you know, but to each their own and you have ready. You know, if you want to get treatment, you have to be ready for treatment and you have to be committed. And at that point in time, I felt like I had done it. Mm -hmm. You know, I took all the boxes. I was ready to go. I was cheered. I was ready to move on with my go life. Go live your life. Go live. Go, yeah, go live my life. So from there, I ended up, this is where everything kind of takes a big turn. So in 2016, I developed another new theme of my OCD and it was relationship OCD, which is still very stigmatized, very taboo. It started off by, I was having visuals as well as intrusive thoughts of being with other people than my husband. My husband is my high school sweetheart. We've been married for 13 years now. I love him dearly and I would never ever want anything to happen to us. But these intrusive thoughts were very, very strong. The images were very clear. And it was a being with other people and other people that were close to me. It was colleagues. It was best friends. And ultimately, it ended up taking a pretty significant hold on my therapist, which was really difficult. Mm -hmm. So I didn't talk about it with anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody. And I ended up having my first full-blown panic attack in May of 2016. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a nurse. I worked in a hospital and I had a code called on me. For those of you that aren't familiar with that, obviously, if there's, you know, a patient or a family member in house and they're having trouble breathing or heart problem, they call a code so that all of the available resources come and assess the patient and get them to where they need to be. So that happened in my department and I was sent down to the ER and I tried to pass it off as, well, maybe I have a weird heart rhythm or, you know, because I didn't really know at the time, but it has since become very apparent that was in fact my first full-blown panic attack. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I called Damon back like within a day after that happened. And I said, something's not right. I said, I'm experiencing a ton of increased anxiety. I think I might have just had a panic attack. I'm not sure what's going on, but I think I need to see you again. Mm-hmm. So he was able to get me back in and it took me months of sessions to finally even tell him that I was experiencing these relationship OCD thoughts. Mm-hmm. And at the same time that I was seeing him, I ended up developing an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And so how that kind of came into play is I was so disturbed by the thoughts and the images that I was having. Mm-hmm. I thought I was not deserving of anything good. So it started out by not eating because I didn't deserve food. Mm-hmm. And then I started over-exercising because when I would get to that point, like barely being able to breathe pain in your chest, I told myself that's what I deserved. I deserved pain. I deserved suffering mm-hmm. for having these thoughts. I have a very strong, what they call thought action fusion. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, you have a thought and you assume that you had that action. So for me, having these thoughts of cheating on my husband and being with other people, to me, I did. Yep. I did it with every single person that crossed my mind. I did it. And I was a terrible human being for doing that. And so I was deserving of all of these bad things. Mm-hmm. The eating disorder took cold really fast. It took a matter of, I mean, I lost, I want to say 30 pounds in like eight weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, my caloric, really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. It was really bad. My caloric intake was like 300 to 600 calories a day. I was running four plus miles every day. I was doing hot yoga multiple times a week. I would, during breaks and lunches at work, I would find a private space to exercise, sit-ups, push-ups, jumping jacks. Mm -hmm. When I would read my kids' books at nighttime, I would do leg lifts. I was in a constant state of motion. Mm -hmm. Sitting was not allowed. And eating was not allowed. And I felt like that is what I deserved. So it went very quick. Got to a point where I had a really bad electrolyte imbalance. They were all very low. I was having heart palpitations, et cetera. And I ended up, it was my husband actually one night turned to me and we were saying goodnight. And he turned and he said, I think you're going to die. And I was like, what? Because to me, I was fine. I was fine. Nobody knew I was fine. It just was what it, you know, was what it was. And I was fine. And something clicked in my brain that I was, oh, oh my gosh, what happened? Like, I'm really sick and maybe I, maybe I will die. And so I remember going into Damon's office like that next day. And I said, and he had been trying to encourage me to seek higher level of care. And I remember I looked right at him and I said, I can't do this anymore. I think I'm really sick. And so I got admitted to a partial hospitalization program mm-hmm. where I went for seven weeks, five days a week. I had to take time off work eight hours a day. And that was a very interesting experience because I had to work with a lot of the treatment providers there. 
so that they understood that my OCD and my eating disorder were very intertwined with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't just treat one or the other. You kind of had to treat them together as a package. Right. Can I ask where you were at too? Yeah, sure. I went to Rogers Behavioral Health. Okay. So I live in Wisconsin. Yeah. So I went to uh, one of the local health centers and it was a life changer. And it um, happens to be local, which is huge. It, it, I'm sure in terms of you being able to access it, it was still a big commitment. And so we're yeah. talking about an intensive outpatient program where you're going in doing a heavy load of therapy mm-hmm. work like, like you would a job. You cl- you're clocking in, clocking out kind of deal in terms of that much time being spent and focused on the therapy. So you went into Rogers and you were needing to educate them about how your eating disorder was really one with your OCD at this point because it was the the core fear that you didn't deserve to experience anything good because you were having these intrusive thoughts, which must be your fault. And so as a punishment, now we've gotten into ED which is a, an abbreviated way for the listening audience unfamiliar with that to reference this monster called eating disorder that was hanging out in the situation with the monster OCD. So they're having a monster bash over there. They are. <laughs> You're like, certainly. And so you went into the hospital and you were letting them know that. And, and what happened next? So treatment there was very difficult. The first couple of days were very difficult. As you can imagine, you know, there was this force to have me consume food that I wasn't eating. I mean, I really wasn't eating anything other than vegetables at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So having to reintegrate dairy and grains and stuff, very anxiety causing. I did a lot of exposures, both about body image exposures, as well as some of my OCD exposures too. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the seven weeks, I came out in a much better place than I was in relation to food. I still was struggling significantly with my intrusive thoughts regarding the relationship OCD, but I was able to eat. I was able to nourish myself. My body weight was starting to come back up. My brain was starting to come back to me. For those of you that aren't familiar, when you deplete your body of so much nutrition, your brain actually has the ability to shrink. Mm-hmm. And it was very noticeable in my life. I pride myself on you know, being engaged in conversations and doing good work whenever I'm trying to produce something. And I was unable to do any of that. Mm -hmm. I was unable to hold conversations with people because I'm so focused on food and exercise all the time. I couldn't live in the present moment with my children and enjoy those, you know, happy things, simple things with them because I'm so focused on food and exercise. I couldn't read books, which is something that I really enjoy doing. I missed out on a lot when I was really sick. So coming out was... I I was in a better place. I was giving my body the nutrition that it needed. I was on a very specific meal plan. And I continued to follow the meal plan for years. Mm -hmm. And still, once in a while, we'll have to go back to it. If I feel like I'm falling into something, you know, an example would be if I get sick with like the flu. You know, a lot of people don't eat. When when you have the flu, you don't feel well. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a very easy domino um, into my eating disorder again. So I have to be very mindful of when I'm starting to feel better again, I jump right back on that meal plan. I'm considered self-select right now. So I eat what I want. But if I have to use my meal plan, I, I use it. Yeah. So it's a tool in your toolbox now that you can mm-hmm. use and it doesn't have to go away. 
that tool. And, and I think it's a really good point to bring up again, you know, before Brooke was telling us about how she had told her therapist, I've, I've checked all these boxes. Here I go. I'm going to go live my, my best life. And, and because I'm fixed, I'm healed, I'm whatever. And you certainly can get to places of remission and, and make a lot of progress. But same as OCD with ED, just because you get to a place that is better and healthier for you and woohoo, you worked really hard to get there. So that's not diminishing that at all. But it doesn't mean it's gone, gone. And you don't have to worry about, you know, falling back into these old patterns. You, there's a common reference in terms of, of learning something or doing something where people go, oh, it's like riding a bike, right? You did it once, you can do it again. Riding a bike can also be an analogy here for some of the harder, trickier parts of different mental health disorders. We can go, yeah, I haven't done that in a really long time, but I can jump back into that, like mm. riding a bike. <laughs> and so you're noticing when things trigger you to especially experience some of those physiological symptoms. And I think people get really tripped up by their physiology because they're like, oh, this isn't my head thing. This is a, you know, I'm feeling nauseous. I literally can't eat. And it can quickly, quickly snowball and go back to bike riding. ED can try and go out on a joyride. And so having tools available that you know have worked for you, at least in the past, or tools that other people have found to be helpful, those are great things to lean into when eating disorder or OCD or anything, depression, anxiety pops up and says, oh, this is just like riding a bike. So mm -hmm. I like that you're pointing that out. So you have tools, you had a better grip on your eating. There are times where you have to kind of catch yourself and lean into your tools. But overall, that was going pretty well. But it sounds like ROCD was still blaring pretty loudly and intensely in your life. Yes. So I, I've been with my therapist ever since 2016 now, the entire time. I have never left treatment. And we have, like I mentioned before, roller coaster. We've had lots of ups and downs. And one of the biggest issues with the relationship OCD is I was uncomfortable telling my therapist that one of the people that my OCD decided to attach to was him. Mm -hmm. So I didn't disclose that part. I started off by telling him about all the other people. Mm -hmm. So we did lots of work and it took months. We did lots of exposures working with all of these other people. But at that same point in time, thoughts were the strongest about him. And I wasn't doing anything with those. I was doing all of my rituals and my compulsions to try to neutralize those thoughts and images. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, it just continues to build up and get worse and worse. So even though I was getting better with some of the other people, I wasn't targeting the number one concern with exposure response prevention. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long time to get there. Mm -hmm. So with that, that's where you get a lot of your ups and downs. So last year... I had a situation where I had my first manic episode, which I kind of, my lifestyle and my personality, I kind of live in like this. I'm, I'm just more hyper. I'm high personality. I talk a lot. I like to talk fast, stuff like that. But this was very different. So what had happened is I had gotten so in my head about these thoughts about my therapist and I was not sharing them. That once again, I thought I was deserving of bad things. So I started cutting myself 
which is something that I had never done before Mm -hmm. as a form of punishment because starving myself wasn't an option because everybody had their eyes on me for that. Mm -hmm. So that would have been too obvious. So I had to find a new way to punish myself that people wouldn't notice. So it started with that. And then very quickly in a matter of days, I got so anxious. The cutting, I couldn't stop cutting. And so I had Alprazolam PRN. And there was a day, I think it was a Friday, if I recall, where I started taking it. And I took a little bit like every hour because I just needed a break. I needed a break from cutting. I needed a break from having thoughts I was having. And so the benzo diazepine started to build up in my system. And all of a sudden, I just cracked. I remember I was home and I just kept cutting myself over and over again. And I called my therapist and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm having voices in my head that are telling me to cut myself. I said, I can't stop. I'm afraid. I went for a walk and I told him I was afraid to go home because I didn't know what was going to happen. And so he said that I needed to go emergently inpatient to a behavioral health center. I was very reluctant, but with the weekend approaching and there was going to be time where I was going to be home alone over the weekend, he was not settling for something else. And this is a time when I'm very thankful for him. I've been very thankful that Rogers connected me with him because this is a perfect opportunity and example to say that he saved my life. So he told me, he's like, you will go in your house because my husband had just pulled in the driveway. He's like, you will go in your house and you will tell him what's going on and you will call Rogers Behavioral Health and we will get you admitted. And he was like, and I'm going to stay on the phone until I know this is all taking place. Yeah. So he did. So I called, I was screened. They admitted me to the inpatient unit that never in my wildest of thoughts would have ever thought that I would have needed something like that. But I am so thankful that the resource was there because I 100% needed it in that moment. I was not able to keep myself safe that weekend. And I was experiencing something that I had never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So I really needed the support and the boundaries that they were able to provide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we did some medication readjustment and I was discharged. And they got you off the Xanax, I'm sure. And they were like, let's get her. Which for yeah. any of you that were wondering, that she was talking about the generic. Alfrazolam. Yeah, for Xanax. But yeah, certainly. And this is very typical of going inpatient. There will be a med adjustment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a med adjustment that's going to bring on a lot more drowsiness and make you, they're trying to turn down the intensity, but it, you can feel kind of zombified in that process. How was your sleep around this time too? I'm I'm curious with If you were sleeping, were you dreaming about these images and other? Yeah, that was if I was sleeping. A lot of times what would happen is I would wake up around like two or three o'clock in the morning and the images would just start and the thoughts would just start. And so I would just sit there and do internal rituals of avoidance, reassurance seeking, checking, et cetera, for the remainder of the night until it was morning. Right. And how old was your daughter at that time? Oh, so this was last year. So my kiddos were... They're about to turn eight and 10. Yeah. So the thing than... is, you know, they're still young. Right. They're still young. Mm-hmm. And so you th- you already think of all the things that keep someone busy as a mom on top of all the obsessions and compulsions that you're dealing with. You're trying to keep on top of your eating. You're trying to keep on track of all these different things. You're dealing with the extent that you feel safe enough to deal with your intrusive thoughts around ROCD. 
And yet the big elephant in the room in terms of like going home to your husband or going into your therapist feeling triggered, no matter what you're doing. And I find a lot of times when people speak of having this difficulty with engaging with reality and being able to tell what's reality or not and have appropriate reality testing, sleep makes a huge difference in this. Because often, if we can get some sleep, we can see a lot of delusions. We can see a lot of psychosis emerge out of sleep-deprived people, food-deprived people, and mix in mental health and physical health. Yes, that is going to be tough. So you went in and you got your meds adjusted. How long were you inpatient for? So I was there for like three days. Okay. I, I'm going to be honest. I can be, I know what to say and when to say it. And that comes from working both sides, right? So I experience it as a patient, but I also, I've also been a mental health nurse in my past. So I know how to treat it. So with that, that can be quite the recipe for disaster because I know what they're looking for, mm -hmm. for a discharge. Mm -hmm. So I, I should have stayed longer based off of what was going on. I should have stayed longer, but I convinced everyone around me that it was, you know, a psychotic break. We've got a hold on it now. I'm rebalanced. I'm ready to go back to my outpatient treatment team. And you rebalance quickly because, you know, psychosis... <laughs> Is, is rarely that brief. It can be, especially if it's fueled by some of this insomnia and just all sorts of different variables. But yeah, so you, you knew what to say. And so mm -hmm. you did the thing and the therapist said you should go inpatient and you did, but you could also get yourself out because you knew how to do that thing. You had worked both sides of it. And so what happened when you came out? You're saying in hindsight, you would have stayed longer, but what did you feel like was the result of coming out early. Yeah. So when I came out, I felt like I got hit by a bus. I was exhausted. I was so tired. I felt like everybody wanted to talk. And by everybody, I just mean, you know, my husband, my treatment team, everybody wanted to debrief. And I had no energy to really do any of that. Mm -hmm. But with that, when I came out, I came out with a different outlook on things. That was one of the scariest moments of my life, having to go into treatment. And more so that day that I went into treatment, I've always thought it had such control in my life. Because that's OCD, right? I want control of everything. That's ED, ED that's OCD, yes. All of it. Anxiety, yep. yep. And so that day that I went in, that is the first day in my life where I felt like I had zero control. I felt like I had lost all forms of control. I couldn't stop cutting. Even if I told myself to stop, I couldn't stop. I just, I felt like I had no control and that was very, very, very scary for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I came out, I just realized like I needed to tackle the demon that was affecting me and I needed to just do it. And so I remember I went in to my therapist, my first appointment, which was very shortly after I had gotten out and discharged. And I sat down and I said, this is what's going on. And I straight up told them, I said, this is super uncomfortable and I don't even know how I'm going to manage to say this. But the reality of the situation is that the relationship OCD, 99% of the time is about you. And so there was kind of this, you know, shock of, okay, you know, this is where we're at with this. And to my surprise, I felt deserving of being scolded, being yelled at, being 
disappointment, mm-hmm. you know, and all of that. And all it was was, okay, well, this is the treatment plan. This is what we're doing. Exposure response prevention. Let's figure out the first exposure that you can tolerate with an anxiety of a three or a four. And let's go from there. And we started. Mm-hmm. And we've been working on that one ever since. And it has come a long, long way. Yay! A long way. Thank you. It was just a couple weeks ago where, as you can imagine, I have a really good relationship with my therapist. I've been with him a long time. And I went into his office just a couple weeks ago and I said, oh my gosh. And he was like, what? And I was like, I can actually sit here and tell you I'm not in love with you. And he was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> You're telling me. Hello. <laughs> I love it. So still working on it because we really want to make sure that that anxiety is diminished. It is a zero and it gets to a place that if it starts to creep back in again, I'm able to go right back into those exposures and do what I need to do to make sure that that doesn't blow up again. Yeah. So in the same way that you were talking about being able to go back to that eating menu when you need to, this absolutely pertains to OCD as well. You can go into those exposures when you need to. And you've you've mentioned earlier in the conversation, and this is true, OCD loves to pop in and out in different forms. So it's not just a matter of, well, if I have those kind of thoughts about the therapist again, then that then I know that's coming back. No, OCD will pop up somewhere else. And so it really is that practice of going, when I start to get distressed and when I start to question, realize, like, give my bearings and go, okay, what do I need to do with an exposure here? And be able right. to lean into it because it can take on all these different forms and really gain strength. And it's scary. I think that sounds scary sometimes for people to go like, oh, my gosh, I have to always be battle ready. Y'all have been battle ready sometimes for decades. Mm-hmm. And the reality is. You don't have to prove to your thought that your thought doesn't exist or it's not true or it's not. You, it's not a jury that you have to give evidence to. That would be the compulsion. So just realizing, actually, if I'm feeling distressed, I can deal with distress. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm in danger. That doesn't mean this is true. And I'm going to lean into it and I'm going to do what OCD doesn't want me to do. And I am going to resist the compulsion or compulsions rather. And so... That's an excellent point of saying we're going to get it down. But, you know, it might pop up and it might pop up in an ROCD way. It might pop up in another way. But you have tools that you're able to lean into and distress it in and of itself is no longer kind of the big, big red flag the second you feel anxiety. Because you can go, oh, yeah, well, I can I can live my life with distress. Sometimes it's going to be there and sometimes it's not. So even if there is a little distress that pops up doesn't mean that I'm going to backslide. It doesn't mean anything necessarily. It just means there it is. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like it is really important. And I have found it to be very important for myself when I feel something sliding or slipping back into old habits to jump on it right away because it's so much easier to deal with instead of letting it brew and embed itself. And then it's just going to take more time to fix again. And One thing I can come up with off the top of my head that I do is I frequently battle with that orthorexia stuff still. Mm -hmm. And so I will go into the pantry and I will find something, an Oreo, something of my kids. Like, I don't even like candy. I like chocolate, but I don't like candy. But I'll like go into my kids candy and eat some, you know, whatever gummy bears or whatever it is. 
just to break that cycle of like, oh, you've gone 10 days without eating anything that's not natural or organic. I need to break the cycle. I need to reintroduce it into my system and show myself that, yep, I can eat these things and things can be okay. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to like eating them, but you can do it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And, you know, what I can say for myself, I myself have OCD and I can say for myself as a recovering perfectionist, another area where it can get tricky is not trying to be so perfect about ERP exposures. Oh, you know, yeah. wow, I, I've done this. I better do this. If I don't do that, it's going to come back and I'm going to and I'm going to go big and go home. Each time I'm going to, you know, do that. And it's very easy to even get in into that trap of doing ERP perfectly. And you might think like, well, what what are you going to do then? And you're not going to do it perfectly. And maybe you're you're going to know I should do this exposure and I'm not I'm not going to compulse, but I'm not going to do the exposure either. I'm just going to be like in my feelings for a bit. And you know what? Maybe that feeling will never pass. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But being able to embrace the uncertainty, because that can get really tricky. Sometimes you can be so good at perfecting the ERP that ERP itself can become the compulsion, Mm -hmm. which is tricky. So in terms of getting to this point where you are now, and it sounds like you are continuing and you've been battling all along, but you're continuing to battle for your life. Something that you were sharing with me before we got on is that you also have a child that has OCD. So your oldest, your son has OCD. And when did you start to kind of pick up on the pieces of that and notice that? So yes, my nine-year-old, almost turning 10-year-old son has OCD. We, I should say I, feel like I started noticing when he was pretty young, like two or three. But I wanted to be very cautious that I was not projecting what I experienced onto him. Mm -hmm. So even though I saw things, I kind of let them slide as maybe that's just you know, behavioral for how old he is, you know, organizing things in certain ways. He liked to take our fruit and organize it by color. He liked to line up his cars. And if you moved one, he didn't like that. He had to put it back. Mm-hmm. More simplistic things like that. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I didn't react. I just kind of took mental note. When we really started to notice, he was sick. And how we knew that it had to be that was we had a couple different experiences. One was he was repeatedly touching things. And I asked him, you know, why are you doing that? And he said, well, if I don't do this, then I'll get stung by a bee. Mm -hmm. So the illogicalness of that is red flag, right? For OCD, like you're, you're doing something so that something bad doesn't happen. That wouldn't happen because you're inside in your bedroom. Even if you're outside in the environment, that doesn't guarantee one way or another that you're not going to get stung. But yeah, yeah, you're seeing the magical kind of link that he's making and you can relate because yeah. you as a young child even were experiencing if I don't have these things correct, it could bring harm. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened to him was we were riding our bikes and he said that he stopped and he was very frustrated and he said that his brain kept telling him to lift his hands off his bike. And I said, You're gonna tell your brain, No, I'm not doing that. And so he was like, Okay, I'll try, I'll try. And then we rode a little bit longer. And then I watched as he lifted his hands off his bike. He lost control of his bike and he took a pretty big digger. And it took us 
months to get him back onto his bike. And it ended up being through ERP that we were able to do so. So right around that time was when I was like, okay, his genetics, I mean, you know, they're not ideal. So it's likely, more likely than not. I mean, we've all got different things in our genetics, but, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. So I was like, and what I wanted to do for him, because what I didn't have, and it was just because of the time that I grew up, you know, it wasn't talked about. Mental health was still not, there wasn't as much awareness as there is now for it. And so I didn't have access to all those resources. And I was guaranteeing that if my son had this, I was going to get him everything he needed so that he didn't have to have the same experience that I did. Mm -hmm. I'm still in treatment because I have so many years of this built up that I have to break down. So we got him a therapist. I was a very good advocate for him in the sense of ensuring that his therapist was highly trained with OCD, exposure response prevention, et cetera. She was, and she has been great. They have made vast improvements. He is medicated as well. Medication does help him just like it helps me. And they continue to work on things as things kind of come and go. But we've gotten him to a point now where he's pretty stable. And he, you know, in the past, he had he feared going to school. And so we got him to enjoy school again. And he goes to school. And I mean, he lives his nine, almost 10 year old daily life that you would expect from a kiddo that age. And that's one thing. I've struggled a lot with a lot of these different things throughout my life, but that's one thing where I find some solace in it that I am hoping that I got this and I dealt with everything that I dealt with so that I could be his number one advocate and I could help him and ensure that, you know, he had the best access to the appropriate resources and treatment so that he does not have to have the same experience that I did. Well, and you know, I think whether you had OCD or not, you would fight for him. But I do think there is power in having shared experience and connecting and not feeling alone. And though you would never wish it on your son, the fact that you know you're not alone, although as parents, sometimes we get that guilt trip, like somehow we magically picked out the genetic code for our child. Right. But at the same time, you know you're not alone. And for him to be able to grow up knowing, yeah, some people have this, And one of the things I like to point to, and it's a big beef in the OCD community when you're like, oh, you're lucky you have OCD. It helps you in this way. And it's very debilitating. So people, if you want to piss somebody off real fast, you can say that like you're lucky for having OCD. But one thing I will say for OCD sufferers and families listening and going through the trench work here with their loved ones is if you can get to a point in life where Even though it's distressing, even with distress, you can embrace the uncertainty and not have to know what's going to happen next, but be okay with the distress. That is a gift that a lot of people do not, do not have. And it causes a lot of fear. It causes a lot of strife in life. You think about in this day and age, it's more polarized than ever. And it's not to say that you're not going to get big feelings or fluffed up about things, but to be able to hold that tension and go, I don't have to solve it. All of these thoughts, all these things I'd hear or vision or whatnot, I don't have to prove or disprove it. I can just let it be and Mm -hmm. I can go on and live my life. That's pretty huge. Because a lot of people get very stuck on it. And there's a lot of big things happening in the world today. 
and being able to function and thrive, even with anxiety, is mm-hmm. such a hard lesson, but certainly a benefit and an advantage in the end. So we don't wish OCD on anybody to get to that point. But I think something about the treatment that brings hope, at least to me, is now being able to hold this distress and go, and I can live my life. Yeah, I don't have to solve it. Uh, Huge. Absolutely Mm -hmm. huge. So I think that's really powerful. And I imagine for him, he won't even think about it in the way that you're thinking about it because it's just normal. He's always had OCD. Mom has OCD. We have OCD. Yep. And that's something that I've been very good about with him and have strived to have those conversations with him and be very open. Yep. Mommy has to go. I have to go do my exposures now. Mm -hmm. We completed your exposures for the day. So now I have to go do mine. And he'll be like, oh, what are you doing? And I share some of them with him that are appropriate for his age. And he'll call me on stuff sometimes because I do it to him too, which is great. You know, I'll say, oh, were you just balancing? And he'll be like, oh, I'll be like, we'll mess it up now. And then I'll be like, okay. And so like sometimes we'll be in the car and I'll do something. And he'll be like, did you just touch that three times? And we keep each other accountable. That's for sure. But that's been really important for me is to normalize it for him. We talk a lot about how everyone has something. Mm -hmm. Everyone is dealing with something. And we're all different people, but we all deserve to be treated with respect and be treated as human beings and to be loved and be cared for and all of that. So I think those conversations have, really helped him. And I hope that they will continue to do so as he gets older. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. My son has OCD as well. And he has this big thing about cheese. It's going to make him sick, particularly cheddar cheese, particularly from our house, because if he has it somewhere else, then, you know, it's fine. But at home, it's like a death wish, apparently. And I had a thing which I did not see as OCD for most of my life of bacon. You know, like I had bacon once when I was younger. I got really sick. Was it the bacon? I suppose it could have been, but it probably wasn't. It probably just got some bug on top of the fact that I just had had bacon. And so I associated the smell and the taste and I didn't like it and I never want bacon. And that's great. People are going to love that because bacon's more expensive. You go and add bacon or whatever. It's not getting in the way of my life. But once I realized, you know what, this is an OCD thing, and I may not like the taste of bacon, believe it or not, a lot of people are like, who are you? What's wrong with you? And it's like, I know, we, we all have our things, <laughs> but I don't love the taste of bacon. And I probably never will. And my, my job isn't to make sure that I do. If I end up developing a love for it out of my exposures to it and going, oh, it's not so bad. Okay. But I don't care where it goes from here. But it was important for me to be able to go, I can eat the bacon. You can eat the cheese, and we're just going to have an extremely healthy meal of (laughs) bacon and cheese here. But it's definitely something I will do. And my son is always like, Yeah. And at this point, I don't even blink at it. It's like, Yep, I'm going to eat a piece of bacon, not because I want it or don't want it, but because I'm not going to have my life ruled by a piece of bacon. Mm -hmm. I can, I can live my life and eat the bacon. And what if I get sick? And I guess I get sick. Okay. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Was it worth this whole thing? And, and bacon is, you know, just the top of the, the iceberg there. But it certainly can be a connecting thing. And so I, I see that in my son, too, where he could be like, hey, they're flipping out about a compulsion. I'm there. 
the yeah. only one that's done that. Yeah. Because sometimes we get stuck in it. We don't realize it. We have blinders or we realize it and we're like, nope, I can't in this moment. And we're struggling. And it's okay to struggle. We just got to pick ourselves up and try again. And so having that shared experience is really powerful. And that's one of the reasons sharing your story on this podcast and just in all the ways that you are through your blog and other podcasts certainly is helping because you're able to not only normalize the experience for yourself, but for other people going, oh, I didn't even I didn't even know that was a thing. And when it comes to things like ROCD, which can be really tricky and OCD is tricky, period. So, you know, <laughs> we'll put that out there. But ROCD can be really tricky because I think a lot of people kind of considering, is this the right relationship? Should we stay together? Should we break up? That's just kind of seen as a normal, evaluated part of relationship. And well, certainly it can be. ROCD can continue to make the stakes higher and higher and more confusing and more layered. And get to the point where you're not even engaging in your relationship because you're compulsing so much in your head, yep. right? So I've been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did that, if I may ask then, how did that impact your marriage? And when did your husband become aware of your ROCD? And what has that journey been like? So it took me a really long time to tell him too, as you can imagine, that's got to be, it's a hard conversation to have Uh because he is phenomenal. I love him dearly and he has been so supportive and he is very aware now of obsessive compulsive disorder and whatnot. But that's still a hard conversation to hear when your wife tells you I'm having thoughts and images being with other people. Mm -hmm. So he found out around the time when I went into treatment for my eating disorder, just because I... I needed to be honest with him and tell him that this was likely the link because he kept saying, what happened? How did this just suddenly happen? And so that's when we had that conversation. And it was difficult for him to hear. And it took him a little while to process and to understand it. But we've come a really far away from then. And he's learned a ton during this process, just like I have. And so he's been really supportive. I mean, he tells me that, you know, those I can be honest with him. I can tell him about the images and the thoughts that I'm having. And that's not going to affect our marriage. So he has been very supportive. There have been times where I have, like I mentioned before, very good at avoidance. So I pulled away. I, you know, I, I wouldn't talk a lot or I would, you know, go up to bed early and things like that because I wanted to avoid being around him or near him because he was still so endearing and so loving and so supportive of me. And I was convinced that I wasn't deserving of those things because of the thoughts that I was having. Mm -hmm. So I secluded myself and pulled away from the relationship. And he just kept pulling me back in, kept pulling me back in, pulling me back in. So Mm -hmm. he has been, oh my gosh, my right arm, left arm, both legs, head, (laughs) all at the same time. But I'm very thankful to have him. But he's been very supportive. But he also has put in the work. I feel like he's read up a lot about it. He, we actually decided starting Maybe about five, six months ago, we bring him into one of my therapy sessions about once a month. Mm-hmm. So that way we, the three of us can connect, make sure that we're all on the same page. If he has questions directly to my therapist, he asks them. So he frequently will ask questions of like, you know, when Brooke asks me this or says this, how can I best support her without reassuring her? That's Things great. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been really helpful. I was very hesitant to do that at first, but it's been very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, I think that having that support and that link to be able to kind of soundboard things off instead of processing some of that directly with you where it could become compulsory, right? But being able to say to the therapist, like, is this, am I on the right track? That's helpful. And also to do some of those exposures in the office. And especially because so many of those ROCD themes have included your therapist, then having the three of you in there together, that is the dream team right there uh, working through those exposures. And so I think that that's a really good point because for our listening community, you might go, well, yeah, I'm always trying to figure out how can I support this person? Should we consider family treatment? I think couples and family treatment is so helpful. Mm -hmm. And I am a marriage and family therapist, so maybe that's partly why. But at the same time, because we can be really good at masking and we can really be good at sometimes attacking our own treatment and really fighting through it. But at the same time, our environment makes a huge difference as well. And how these responses can feed even in very subtle ways and 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 sometimes the sufferer and the loved one aren't even aware of it because it's just been your dynamic for so long right and so having an objective person being able to go like hey, let's try and run this exposure together can be really helpful i think often feels scary for the family member and the sufferer to mm-hmm. think about but i think as you get into it It can be a huge asset. So that's certainly a good tip for our community in terms of if you're kind of questioning, what can I do? You can talk. If your person, if your loved one is in treatment, you can lean into their treatment team, too, because you're all on the same team. It's all of you guys against OCD. It's all of you guys fighting for your loved one to be able to live their best life and that you guys can, too. And so I, I think that's huge. And so getting into treatment, participating in treatment, it may not need to be every time. And there may be other work for your loved one to do that does not need your direct involvement. But also having that link so that families can be aware, spouses or partners can be aware of where you're at in that journey. That's huge. Yeah. I also really like the piece that you said about Telling your husband that that was a lot to take in and he had to process it because here's the thing. With intrusive thoughts, it's intrusive. It's uncomfortable for a reason. They're not called lovely thoughts. We're not like sipping fruity drinks out of pineapples on the beach here. We're having a very distressing time. And that's why it's been so distressing for you because over time, it's been this buildup of, oh my goodness, what does this mean? And you sitting with that distress on your own. And so getting to even see a loved one go through it and it took him time to process because it was intrusive, but being able to go and move on also pretty huge to be able to see like, yeah, it's not that it's bad that I responded by not liking the intrusive thought. You never have to like the intrusive thought. But our brain was getting stuck then in this OCD thought loop, and our brain was reinforcing that thought loop to stick through our compulsion. So now that we know that, we can even go, yeah, I didn't like that thought. I don't like that it was intrusive. Yeah. And you can watch other people grieve or have their reaction to it. And I think sometimes that can be a positive reframe of, yeah, I mean, it's okay to go like, didn't like that. But that also doesn't mean we have to get into compulsions to 
minimize, neutralize, or avoid the outcome because ultimately it's not going to avoid the outcome. It's going to stick that thought further in the brain. And so I think those are really good examples in terms of how that impacted your relationship and you were able to get to that point where you could talk with him about it. Did he know that your therapist was a large majority of kind of your theme here? So he didn't find that part out until probably about a year ago. Mm-hmm. I would say that same time that I kind of told I was very like forthcoming around the same time that I got hospitalized is when I kind of let everyone in. Just because as you can imagine from my viewpoint, it's like I'm going to tell my husband that I'm having these thoughts about my therapist and then I'm going to go sit in an office with my therapist by myself for hour long sessions once a week. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, my gosh, who would ever want to hear that? You know, but I knew that 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 was half of the battle, too. I think that it helped me with my OCD in just being forthcoming about that because I was no longer keeping it a secret. So it didn't hold that same amount of power that it had prior Mm -hmm. to when I told both of them. I mean, they know we talk about it when it's the three of us in session. We talk about what exposures I'm working on for it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, just when we met recently, my therapist Damon was like, yeah, Chris, the other day she told me that she doesn't love me. And so we all have a good sense of humor about it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I had this celebratory moment because I spent so much of my time thinking that. And every time I went to therapy, I was convinced that I was going to make a move. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can exposures like where my therapist sat in a chair with his back to me mm-hmm. because then he would have no control. It would all be me. If I was going to make a move, then I was going to make a move. Right. And the first time we did that, I remember he turned his back to me. He was still like six feet away from me. I curled up on the back of the couch like a cat. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And we started there and then we waited until my anxiety came down and then he moved a little closer and then he moved a little closer until the point where he was like sitting right in front of me and my anxiety was like a zero or a one. And I found humor in at that point in time in what we were doing. But yeah, exposures like that, I, we've, we've come a long way. We're still working on it. But yeah. Absolutely. And that's so inspiring and great to hear because, yeah, it's a work in progress. And you can have, Brooke has told us, She's had lots of highs where she's done very well and she's even gone and and taken a break from therapy and had moments where she felt very like, yeah, I got this, functional and all of that. And it's not to say that she wasn't functioning well, but she also had moments that were lower lows. She's had lots of in-between and it's okay. None of it is saying you're not successful. None of it is saying that you had that low because you failed in some way or because it's going to come back harder and stronger and never go away. It's our desire to solve all that. We say there must be a reason why. No, OCD needs no reason. OCD just wants to screw around with you, wants to cause this fear, cause this terror. And so it's really empowering to be able to go, you know what? I had to do intensive outpatient at one point. I had to do inpatient at one point. But, you know, here I'm laughing about the fact that I'm not in love with the therapist. And it gives hope. Like, you can have some of these roller coasters, but compared to the daily compulsory roller coaster that you were going on with OCD, it doesn't even, you can't even compare. It's still hard. ERP is hard. 
You're oh yeah, it's challenging. Very challenging. It's very challenging. But at the same point, you are tough. You are strong and you've survived decades at this point of living with OCD, trying to stay above water. And now you're thriving in life mm-hmm. with or without OCD, with or without eating disorder, with or without depression. You are living and you're getting to have your life back for one mm-hmm. of the first times. And so doesn't mean it's always going to be sunshine and rainbows. It also doesn't mean it's always going to be hard. Right. And we can embrace the uncertainty in between. So that's huge. One other thing you were saying, Brooke, before we started recording is you have a blog, which I am going to be linking a link on this episode's blog post on OCDFamilyPodcast.com. But the blog is called Smashing Stigmas, smashingstigmas.com. And one of the things you were telling me was some of your family and friends that are cherished loved ones in your life have been reading the blog and have been even a little surprised to find out, if not a lot surprised maybe in certain situations, of what you were going through on the inside through these different periods of your life. And I think that brings up another point as well. It can be scary to go back. We can get so good at masking that we don't even think to think of some of these things as we kind of unearth them. But I think another big resource is being able to have these conversations. And so by writing this blog for all of us, that's great, but also opening up these conversations then within your family and being able to go, yeah, I did do that. I did Mm -hmm. do that. And being able to have some of these conversations, I think there can be fear and shame and all sorts of things that feel wrapped up into it. Parents can feel responsible for things. You can feel like, oh, I didn't do this well or whatever. In talking about it, I would challenge people to not let fear in a very ERP way define your relationship and risk going there because I think often it brings a lot of healing to the family, a lot of healing for you to be able to go like, this was my story and I didn't tell it for so long, but now you have a voice and you get to tell it. OCD Mm -hmm. is no longer the one pulling the Mm -hmm. strings. You get to tell it. Eating disorder is not pulling the strings. You get to tell it. And depression is not pulling the strings. You get to tell it. And that's really, really powerful. So I really appreciate your willingness to come and share with us about your journey so far. And I say so far because this journey isn't over. It's Mm -hmm. not over. And I just thank you for including us along the way in this journey as well. I'm super glad to be here. So thank you. Thank you for that. What a conversation, y'all. I mean, fam, what an honor it is not only to hear Brooke's story, but to know that we're not alone. And I think many facets of Brooke's story, much like Micah's and Allie's, are so relatable. And so to each one of these OCD warriors that has stopped and taken the time to share their experience, their voice with us, we are so appreciative. And we are a better family for it. So thanks again to Brooke and all of our lived experience OCD and OCD-related disorder fam that has risked transparency and vulnerability for the sake of helping others. You are seen, you are appreciated, and you are not alone. 
Now, the intrusive thought segment for our newer crew is a segment where I like to provide a practical application piece to encourage each of us to do something practical in the days ahead and to apply some of the content that we've gleaned from our time together. And as we wrap up our conversation, Brooke is going to share about some resources that have been helpful for her, and she's going to talk about the importance of some of our support circles. This goes for not only the sufferer, okay, but for the support community too. Yes, you guys, you, me, all of us, we need support too. We need to be championed too. So let's listen as Brooke shares just a bit more. So as we close today, I'm wondering, are there any other kind of things that you feel like could have helped you in hindsight or things that you try to do even in providing a, a healthy, conducive environment for your son battling his OCD as well as yourself that you would recommend that could be helpful for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I believe that support is key. But I see support in many different ways. So that can be leaning on family, friends. That can be working with a local behavioral health institution, an outreach program, finding yourself your own, you know, treatment team, whether that be a therapist, a psychiatrist, and really advocate for yourself in those scenarios of meeting those people and find the right fit so that you can benefit the most from that. There are so many resources online now. There's IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation. There's No OCD. There is NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Alliance. So many resources, and they're really present on social media. Good contacts for you. So even if you may not have the family and friend support, you can find the support online. Virtual appointments have become very popular mm -hmm. ever since COVID. So there are therapists that you can connect with that are trained in OCD, are trained in exposure response prevention, and you can meet with them online and they may live three, four, five hours away from you. Mm -hmm. So definitely support is key and ensuring that the treatment providers you're working with are familiar with exposure response prevention. It's the gold standard. It, I'm not going to say always because I don't want to be black and white. <laughs> it almost always is very helpful. But yeah, the parting words that I would have are just, there is hope. I struggled significantly. My OCD, my eating disorder, my bipolar, my panic disorder have taken a lot from me in the past, taken a lot of moments from me in the past. And I'm just not going to allow that to happen anymore. And I'm very grateful for my support system, my treatment team, my family, my friends. And we will continue this journey, whatever it may bring. But I am in a much better place. And, you know, you mentioned this before. I have always looked for the end all be all. I've always looked for the solution, the cure with it goes right along with that black or white thinking. And it, that, that's not the reality, but I have gotten to a place where I can live with, I can manage my symptoms. I'm able to live in the moment now with my family, my kids. I'm able to enjoy things. I love to read again. I love to go to the gym and bike ride. I love to engage in incredible conversation with people. And I'm just able to actually enjoy all of those activities. Again. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the cure. Mm -hmm. That is success. 
that is getting better in my eyes. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Being able to have moments of joy and realizing that even when we experience distress, it doesn't define us. We can still engage and have life and live. And that is that it's really huge. And, you know, you're not alone. We're not alone. We are in this together. And I think that support piece is huge because, yes, yes, there's going to be hard days. There's going to be great days. Before, it was like living hell every day. And we're still going to have hard moments in life for sure. But we're also going to have opportunities to live and have joy or even have a, dare I say, boring day. What a gift to be able to have days where it's like, I want to do something. I don't know what to do. Instead of feeling trapped in doing so many things that never bring that sense of relief that you're working so hard for. And so I think that's really powerful. And we just thank you for your willingness to share with us today, Brooke. It's a new day. It's a new year. We're going to embrace that. People always say, oh, no, I don't make New Year's resolutions because whatever, and I'll never hold to it. But what if we, what if we say, no, I'm going to do what I can to expand my circle of support even if it's by one person. Yeah. I'm going to face one scary thing, even if I don't have OCD. Even if you've just found us, you're just curious, you're interested in finding out more. Maybe you have a loved one that's battling OCD and you say, I'm going to try and face a fear too, because they're, they're working really hard on this. And I'm going to walk with them in this and not let fears define me either. That's a great goal. So thank you again, Brooke. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I just can't wait to continue to see where this journey goes with Smashing Stigmas. Brooke told me she is in the process of writing a book too. So I'm excited to see the things that we continue to learn about and lean into. And Brooke is right there with us, walking with us, fighting with us. And so thank you so much for being a part of this community. Yeah, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Until next time, folks. Ciao. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Brooke Miller and me spilling the tea. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.